Hi, everyone, and good afternoon. Welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal. This is the February 9th edition. It is brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. My name is Andrew Hopp. I'm your reader filling in. Hope you're having a great afternoon. As bef- Before we get into the headlines, we're going to take a check of the forecast. For this afternoon, you can expect a slight chance of drizzle and snow, and then a slight chance of snow this hour between 4 and 5 p.m., mostly cloudy conditions with a high near 33, breezy with a north-northwest wind around 25 miles per hour, gusting as high as 40 miles per hour, a 20% chance of precipitation, but again, for your Thursday afternoon, you can expect a high of 33 degrees. For tonight, Thursday night, partly cloudy with low around 12, blustery conditions with winds from the north and northwest up to 25 miles per hour, calming down to around 20 miles per hour after midnight. And uh, it does say it could gust as high as 35 miles an hour, though, so it's a little bit confusing how that's written, but uh, blustery winds tonight. For tomorrow, your Friday, expect uh, sunny skies uh, with a high near 33. Friday night, clear with a low around 22. Saturday, very nice, sunny with a high near 42. Winds out of the south as high as 25 miles per hour. Saturday night, mostly clear with a low around 22. And Sunday, mostly sunny for your Super Bowl Sunday, a high near 37. Looks like we've got moderate temperatures throughout early next week. Uh, high of 45 on Tuesday, Wednesday, looking at a chance of rain and flurries, but a high of 41, almost a week from now. So we've got lots of nice days in the forecast, so do go enjoy being outside a little bit. It's a good time for it. It feels like it's a bit of an early spring. Maybe that ridiculous groundhog was wrong, hey? That'd be nice. Uh, Looking at the headlines now, longtime Woodbury County prosecutor is resting his case. We're talking about Mark Campbell. Looks like he is going to retire. And then also, supervisors approve pay raise for county workers. Non-union employees are getting a 4.25% increase in wages. Also, Iowa officials react to State of the Union. Grassley says, rude of Biden to say GOP wants to sunset Social Security and Medicare. And our final front page story is deaths in Turkey and Syria quake near 12,000. Eek. Scary stuff. But we'll start it off now with a story about this prosecutor. Longtime Woodbury County prosecutor is resting his case. And the headline photo shows First Assistant Woodbury County Attorney Mark Campbell sitting at the prosecutor's table in a Woodbury County courtroom. He'll retire Friday after spending all but nine months of his 39-year career as a prosecutor in the Woodbury County Attorney's Office. It's quite some time. Dateline Sioux City. In 39 years as a prosecutor, Mark Campbell handled hundreds of cases, appeared before dozens of judges, served under six county attorneys, and tried 123 jury trials to a verdict. Retiring on Friday after spending nearly four decades in the Woodbury County Attorney's Office, Campbell said it's been a rewarding career and totally different from the one he had thought he'd have after graduating from the University of Iowa College of Law in 1983. With an undergraduate business degree to go with his law degree, Campbell was planning for a career in business or corporate law. But he graduated in the midst of a recession, and companies weren't hiring lawyers. So when he saw an opening for an assistant county attorney in Cherokee County, Campbell, in need of a job, decided to give it a shot. It sounded interesting, though he'd never really considered criminal law. It didn't take long for him to change career plans. 
It turned out I really enjoyed criminal prosecution, Campbell said. It was a lot more fulfilling than I could have ever imagined. Nine months later, in March 1984, Campbell moved to Sioux City after then-Woodbury County Attorney Pat McCormick hired him to fill a newly created position prosecuting drunken driving cases. Those thoughts of being a corporate lawyer were quickly gone for good, Campbell said, as he found practicing criminal law satisfying. You really feel like you were contributing something of value and doing something of significance with your life. I realize there are not many positions in law that allow you to do that, he said. Every once in a while, you get a case where you really felt like you made a difference. Scoring a conviction to send a dangerous person to prison, trying a case when no victim was available to testify, Scouring textbooks written by the defense's expert witnesses, those types of cases pushed Campbell through times when it could have been easy to get bogged down with the dozens of routine cases on his desk. There are times when the grind gets to me, he said. This job's got great lows and great highs. I'm not going to miss the great lows. That's one of the things that made me reluctant to retire is the highs can be really good. Ultimately, Campbell said he decided a job that could require long hours and weekends in the office researching legal issues and preparing for trials was no longer worth all that time. After spending a recent holiday weekend in the office just to keep up with the routine work, he decided it was time to step away. I got home and decided it's taking up too much of my life, Campbell said. At some point, I've got to call it quits. Then County Attorney Tom Mullen appointed Campbell his first deputy, the highest-ranking Assistant in the office in November 1988, a title Campbell held for more than 34 years, even after losing to Patrick Jennings in the 2006 election to replace Mullen. Born in Carroll, Iowa and raised in Clarinda, Iowa, Campbell said he never had a reason to move from Woodbury County. He did apply once to be a district associate judge. After being passed over, he realized he was glad uh, he wasn't chosen. This job gives me more control over what I do, he said. Campbell was a constant in the county attorney's office for nearly four decades, adapting to ever-changing technologies such as DNA testing, police body cameras, widespread surveillance cameras, and cell phones, all of which can provide solid evidence to support a prosecutor's case. It's all aided his job, but Campbell said at that age, 65, he's realized he hasn't been able to spend as much time seeing family and friends as he'd like. He'll move to Des Moines after retiring so he can be closer to them. I think it's time to spend more time with family, he said. It's a decision he'll likely enjoy more than any handed down by a judge during his long career. Our second front page story, supervisors approve pay raise for county workers. Non-union employees are getting a 4.25% increase in wages. This written by Caitlin Yamada of the Sioux City Journal, Dateline Sioux City. Non-union Woodbury County employees will receive a 4.25% pay increase, a slight increase from the 4% given last year. The Board of Supervisors voted 4-1 to one on Tuesday to approve the 4.25% pay raise, pay raise for the county's wage plan employees with Chair Matthew Ung, Mark Nelson, Jeremy Taylor, and Dan Bittinger for Keith Radig opposed. Radig said he would have preferred a 3.5% increase or less. He said many of the items that have been heavily impacted by inflation are currently dropping in price. There are around 40 employees covered under the wage plan, spanning many of the county's departments. 
This year, the board has been able to achieve a flat tax rate with some leeway, giving more room for potential increases than in prior years. A 3% wage plan increase was built into the budget. Ung said he felt the board undershot the wage increase last year, but this year prices are going down. The inflation rate was 6.5% in 2022, a slight decrease from 7% in 2021. Human Resources Director Melissa Thomas said many comparable countries, or counties rather, counties, are giving raises of around 3 and 4%. Scott County is giving 3%, Blackhawk County. Employees will receive 3%. Pottawatomie County is giving between 3 and 4%. Story County has approved 4.5%. Lynn County is giving 4.5%. And Johnson County, employees will receive a pay hike of 4.75%, according to provided numbers. Last year, the board had a heated discussion regarding the wage plan increase, with some supervisors initially suggesting a 7% increase to match inflation. The board eventually settled on a 4% increase. In 10 years, the 4% increase last year was the highest given to wage plan employees, with the lowest being 1.25% in 2013, Ung said. He also said the 10-year average is 2.65%. The board still has a few different wage classifications to consider before the budget is certified on March 28th. Currently, the budget has the full recommendations made by the Compensation Board, and no board discussion has been done. The Compensation Board made a recommendation of of a 7% increase for Auditor Pat Gill, Treasurer Tina Bertrand, and County Attorney James Loomis, a 10% increase for the Board of Supervisors, and a 22% increase for Sheriff Chad Sheehan. The Sheriff's Deputies Union is also currently negotiating its three-year contract with the county. They are asking for a 10% increase in the first year, a 9% increase in the second year, and an 8% increase in the third year. The county is countering with a 1% increase each year. In our third front page story here in the Sioux City Journal, Thursday edition, Iowa officials react to State of the Union. Grassley says it is rude of Biden to say the GOP wants to sunset Social Security and Medicare. This written by Tom Barton of the Journal Des Moines Bureau. Iowa political figures on both sides of the aisle weighed in on Democratic President Joe Biden's second State of the Union address Tuesday night. Democrats praised the president for setting out a progressive vision for the country and signing into law major bills, including the bipartisan infrastructure package and legislation to promote high-tech manufacturing and limit prescription drug costs for seniors. Republicans, meanwhile, criticized Biden over inflation, immigration, the fentanyl crisis, China, and business regulations. Biden sought to portray a nation that's dramatically improved from one he inherited two years ago with low unemployment, strong job growth, and easing inflation. The president also offered an optimistic outlook about the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Still only a quarter of U.S. adults say things are headed in the right direction, according to a new poll by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Here's what Iowa politicians and officials had to say about his speech. Iowa Governor, Republican Kim Reynolds, For too long, Washington has been creating problems and leaving it up to the states to clean up the mess, said Reynolds, who provided last year's Republican Party's response to Biden's first State of the Union address. As Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders displayed tonight, Republican-led states are leading and delivering. 
Republic, uh, Reynolds said in a statement. The Biden administration has lost every sense of reality. Biden believes the American people are naive and don't see the crisis and chaos his administration has created. The problems that face our country require new leadership, not a re-election speech. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, Grassley, who did not attend the address but watched it on television, said it was rude of the president to bring up Scott's proposal, calling it a stupid idea not supported by House and Senate Republicans. And so the president should not have made as big of a deal out of that as he did when only one senator has suggested that, Grassley told reporters Wednesday during a weekly conference call. This is fear-mongering, I think, by the Democrats to score points with the American people. Grassley said Social Security and Medicare are part of the social fabric of America, and we have to be strengthening it and extending it for the benefit of our children and grandchildren. He also criticized for... Was also, he also criticized Biden for not talking enough about national security threats, particularly from China. Biden nodded to his decision to shoot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon as evidence that his administration will act to protect our country against threats from Beijing. Grassley, though, said Biden did not give the issue the justice it deserved. U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, said, at the hands of big government, middle class, families, small businesses, and hardworking Iowans are suffering. I believe the majority of Americans will agree. Under Biden, the state of our union is a more expensive and less safe, Ernst said in a statement. In contrast, Ernst said Republicans are working to cut wasteful spending, secure the southern border, and support entrepreneurs and small businesses. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks of Ottumwa, Republican, says Americans and Iowans alike are desperate to recover from the economic side effects of the COVID pandemic. But Biden's policies have only made things worse, Miller-Meeks said in a statement. Meanwhile, House Republicans have passed legislation to unleash American energy and protect our strategic petroleum reserve with American taxpayers and put an end to the public health emergency, Meeks said, Miller-Meeks said. Finally here, it mentioned, is U.S. Representative Randy Feenster, Republican of Hull. He said, Tonight, President Biden ignored the destructive consequences of his liberal agenda and doubled down on his failed policies. Feenster said in a statement, Under his purview, our national debt stands at a record $31 trillion. Our families are paying more for gas and groceries. Our farmers are suffering from high input costs. Millions of illegal immigrants have crossed our border, and our energy reserves are depleted. Feenstra added that he was disappointed Biden did not mention China's reckless purchase of American farmland and a proposed ban in Mexico on genetically modified corn imports. These are issues critical to rural America that require serious solutions about steady leadership and steady leadership, of which the Biden administration lacks both, Feenstra said. Our final front page story, Deaths in Turkey and Syria Quake Near 12,000. This is written by Mehmet Gazol, Gaith Alsaid, Susan Frazier, and Zenep Bilginzoy. Bilginzoy. If I'm butchering any of your names, my deepest apologies. Dateline, Gazetep, Turkey. This is an Associated Press story. With hope of finding survivors fading, stretched rescue teams in Turkey and Syria searched Wednesday for signs of life in the rubble of thousands of buildings toppled by the world's deadliest earthquake in more than a decade. 
The confirmed death toll approached 12,000. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, or Erdogan, if I'm saying his name right, visited the especially hard-hit Hatay province, where more than 3,300 people died and entire neighborhoods were destroyed. Residents there have criticized the government's response, saying rescuers were slow to arrive. Erdogan, who faces a tough battle for re-election in May, acknowledged shortcomings in the response to Monday's 7.8 magnitude quake, but said the winter weather was a factor. The earthquake destroyed the runway in Hatay's airport, further disrupting the response. It is not possible to be prepared for such a disaster, Erdogan said. We will not leave any of our citizens uncared for. He also hit back at critics, saying dishonorable people, quote-unquote, were spreading what he called lies and slander about the government's response. Turkish authorities said they are targeting disinformation. And an internet monitoring group said access to Twitter was restricted despite it being used by survivors to alert rescuers. Search teams from more than two dozen countries have joined tens of thousands of local emergency personnel in Syria and Turkey. But the scale of destruction from the quake and its powerful aftershocks was so immense and spread over such a wide area, including a region isolated by Syria's ongoing civil war, that many people were awaiting help. Experts said the survival window for those trapped under the rubble or otherwise unable to obtain basic necessities was closing rapidly. At the same time, they said it was too soon to abandon hope. In the first 72 hours, the, those hours are critical, considered to be critical. That said, Stephen Godby, a natural hazards expert at Nottingham Trent University in England. The survival ratio on average within 24 hours is 74%. After 72 hours, it was 22%, and by the fifth day, it is 6%. Rescuers at times use excavators or picked gingerly through debris, with thousands of buildings toppled, it was not clear how many people might still be caught in the rubble. In the Turkish city of Malatya, bodies were placed side by side on the ground and were covered in blankets while rescuers waited for vehicles to pick them up, said former journalist Otsil Pikal. Pikal, who took part in rescue efforts, said he thinks at least some of the victims froze to death in temperatures that dipped to 21 degrees Fahrenheit. As of today, there is no hope left in Malatya, Pikal said by telephone. No one is coming out alive from the rubble. Road closures and damage in the region made it hard to access all the areas that need help, he said, and there was a shortage of rescuers where he was. Our hands cannot pick up anything because of the cold, said Pikal. Work machines are needed. The region was already beset by more than a decade of civil war in Syria. Millions have been displaced within Syria itself, and millions more have sought refuge in Turkey. Turkey's president said the country's death toll passed 9,000. The Syrian health ministry said the death toll in government-held areas climbed past 1,200. At least 1,600 people have died in the rebel-held northwest, according to the volunteer first responders known as the White Helmets. That brought the overall total to almost 12,000. Tens of thousands more are injured. David Alexander, a professor of emergency planning and management at University College London, said data from past earthquakes suggested the likelihood of survival was now slim, particularly for individuals who suffered serious injuries. Statistically, today is the day when we're going to stop finding people, he said. That doesn't mean we should stop searching. 
Alexander cautioned that the final death toll may not be known for weeks because of the sheer amount of rubble. The last time an earthquake killed so many people was 2015, when 8,800 died in a magnitude 7.8 quake in Nepal. A 2011 earthquake in Japan triggered a tsunami, killing almost 20,000 people. Many of those who survived the earthquake lost their homes and were forced to sleep in cars, government shelters, or outdoors amid rain and snowfall in some areas. We don't have a tent. We don't have a heating stove. We don't have anything. Our children are in bad shape. That says Asan Kurt, age 27. We did not die from hunger or the earthquake, but we will die freezing from the cold. Moving on now to page A2, since we took care of everything on the front page. Toll of police brutality on display at State of the Union. This written by Farnoosh Amiri of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. The toll of police brutality in America was on painful display as family members of black men and women killed in custody joined lawmakers in the Capitol to hear Joe Biden's State of the Union address. Seated near Jill Biden on Tuesday night were the mother and father of Tyree Nichols, who died after being savagely beaten by Memphis, Tennessee police officers last month. There are no words to describe the heartbreak and grief of losing a child, Biden said after introducing Roe Vaughn and Rodney Wells to a standing ovation. But imagine what it's like to lose a child at the hands of the law. The difficult conversation was described that black parents have to have with their kids about police at a young age. Most of us here have never had to have the talk, Joe Biden said. Let's come together and finish the job on police reform. Mothers, fathers, and loved ones of victims of police violence were invited as guests of the Congressional Black Caucus and the First Lady to put pressure on Washington to address the issue of policing. It may have been Tyree Nichols yesterday, but it could have been any one of us today and tomorrow. Representative Steve Horsford, Democrat of Nevada, the chairman of the Black Caucus, said of the most recent victim during a news conference Tuesday morning, a video released earlier this month showed the violent January 7th encounter between Nichols and the Memphis, Tennessee police officers who beat the 29-year-old black FedEx worker for three minutes while screaming profanities at him. Nichols was hospitalized and died days later. Five police officers who are also black have been fired and charged with second-degree murder, and two more have been disciplined. Days after the release of the video, Horshford reached out to Nichols' parents, Rovon and Rodney Wells to invite them to the State of the Union address. Being in the room for the State of the Union is an experience that I hope will give Tyree Nichols' parents some comfort and, most of all, hope, Horsford said. They deserve to hear a commitment to real action on ending this national scourge of unnecessary deaths at the hands of law enforcement. Also in attendance Tuesday night were the mother of Eric Garner and the brother of George Floyd, among others. The visible reminder of pol police brutality comes against the backdrop of reignited negotiations among lawmakers to draft a modest proposal for police reform that could pass in a newly GOP-controlled House. The talks last Congress focused on writing compromise legislation 
curbing law enforcement agencies' use of force and making them more accountable for abuses. But negotiations stalled over Democrats' demands to make individual police officers accused of abuses liable for civil penalties. Black Caucus members went to the White House last week for a three-hour meeting with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and left with an agreement on the path forward both legislatively and through executive action. On Tuesday night, Biden called for Congress to continue that work by passing legislation that gives law enforcement more resources to reduce violent crime and gun crime and invest more community intervention in more community intervention programs. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyree's mother come true. Something good must come from this, Biden said in his speech. All of us in this chamber, we need to rise this moment. Meanwhile, advocates have been urging the White House to be more clear about what has historically held up progress on police reform, even when Democrats controlled Congress. Horace Ford and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, the two men leading negotiations in each chamber, said that this time around, Democrats could not go forward on their own, but will need buy-in from Republicans and law enforcement groups to pass lasting, meaningful reform. Moving on now to page A3. Top talker, legal sizes for lobsters could change to protect population. This is an AP story, Dateline Portland, Maine, written by Patrick Whittle. The rules about the maximum and minimum sizes of lobsters that can be trapped off New England could soon become stricter, potentially bringing big changes to one of the most valuable seafood industries in the country. Fishers are required to measure lobsters from eyes to tail and must throw back their crustaceans if they're too large or too small. The rules, which can vary slightly based on fishing grounds, are intended to maintain a breeding population of the lobsters in key areas such as the Gulf of Maine and George's Bank. The regulatory Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is considering changing the standards by a fraction of an inch in some of the fishing grounds. The commission said it's considering the changes because of a worrisome lack of a baby lobsters growing off New England. The changes would arrive at a time when the lobster industry is experiencing record highs in both catch and value, and consumers are paying more for lobsters, already a premium product, than they were just a few years ago. The industry is also challenged by new fishing rules designed to protect rare whales. Recent surveys that show declining levels of young lobsters are a concern for the future of the fishery, said Caitlin Starks, Senior Fishery Management Plan Coordinator for the Commission. Those numbers were declining, Starks said. The levels of new lobsters recruiting into the fishery were particularly low, and there was concern that was going to foreshadow decline. The Commission is soliciting public comment on the proposal and plans to hold public meetings about it in March, Stark said. The changes would affect lobster fishers from Maine to the waters off southern New England, and the hearings will be held in those places, Stark said. Changes could be implemented by fall 2024 if they were approved, if they are approved, Stark said. Lobster fishing groups such as the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association are following the development, said Beth Kasani, executive director of the group. The association doesn't have a stance yet because the exact specifications of the proposed changes are still to come, she said. We're waiting to see what the preferred management options are, Kasani said. 
The size of the U.S. lobster catch has increased dramatically in the last 15 years. The catch in Maine, which is by far the largest producer of lobsters, is typically more than 100 million pounds per year. Fishermen had never even eclipsed 80 million pounds in a single year as recently as 2008. But the population of lobsters off southern New England has crashed, and scientists who perform surveys of baby lobsters from eastern Canada to Long Island, New York. Have found a below-average number of them settling on the ocean bottom in areas such as the Gulf of Maine since 2012, the commission said in a statement. Given the economic importance of the lobster fishery to many coastal communities in New England, especially in Maine, potential reductions in landings could have vast socio-economic impacts, the statement said. Canadian fisheries harvest the same species of lobster and have their own measurement standards, which throws a wrinkle into efforts to manage the population. The rationale for changing the U.S. measurement standards is that it gives lobsters more opportunity to reproduce, said Richard Whale, a marine science professor at University of Maine who directs the Lobster Institute at the university. The change would also have ramifications such as marketing consequences for the U.S.-Canada trade, he said. More restrictive measurement guidelines would be consistent with the precautionary approach to hedge bets against poor year classes, Whale said. Well, that puts us at the halfway point here in this reading of the Sioux City Journal. This is the what is today? It's Thursday, the Thursday, February 9th edition here, as brought to you here on IRS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All of the programs you hear here on IRS are intended for the use. Of our audience, if you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 or at 1-877-404-4747. Now let's take a look at today's obituaries here in the Sioux City Journal. First off, we have Carol G. Peterson. Age 85 died Monday, February 6, 2023. Services will be February 10th. That would be tomorrow. At 1 p.m. at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel, burial will be in the Logan Park Cemetery. Visitation is from February 9th. Is that be today from 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Next, we have Shirley J. Sargent of Cherokee, formerly of Washita, Iowa, age 76, died Friday, February 3, 2023. Services are February 11th at 11 a.m. at the Boothby Funeral Home of Cherokee. The burial is at a later date. At the Quimby Cemetery in Quimby, Iowa, visitation will be February 11th from 10 a.m. until service time at the funeral home. From there, we have Marion V. Perry from Lincoln, Nebraska, formerly of Sioux City, Iowa, age 96, died Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Service was held at Lincoln Graveside Services with husband Lester, February 11th at 2 p.m. Graceland Park Cemetery of Sioux City. Visitation is February 11th from 1 to 2 p.m. at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. From there we go to Kathleen L. Bowles, last name spelled B-O-L-L-E-S, of Sioux City, age 95, died Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Services are February 9th, that's today, they would have happened already, at 11 a.m. at the Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. That's at 4125 Orleans Avenue. Burial will be in the Memorial Park Cemetery, and I guess it was already. So um, visitation was one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. From there, we have the Reverend Dr. Dennis Gordon Tevis, last name spelled T-E-V-I-S, of Hornick, Iowa, age 75, died Monday, February 6th, 
2023. Services are February 11th at 2 p.m. at the Hornick United Methodist Church, located at 411 5th Street in Hornick. Burial is private at a later date. Arrangements are with the Goslar Funeral Home and Monuments of Onawa, Iowa. Live stream is available at the Funeral Home's website. And that's all we have for that section. Moving on to some briefs right now. Man attempted to commit casino fraud at Hard Rock, Dateline Sioux City, where Dodjo Elon Granberry of Sioux City has been charged with casino fraud from an incident at the Hard Rock Casino. Granberry, age 57, attempted to have someone else claim his slot machine winnings from Hard Rock Casino to avoid paying offset funds he owed. He pled guilty to charges of unlawful betting and fraudulent claim and solicitation to commit a felony on February 2nd. On August 7th, 2022, Granberry won a slot machine jackpot at the Hard Rock Casino in Sioux City, according to the Iowa Department of Public Safety press release. He attempted to have another person claim the winnings to avoid paying offset funds that he owed to the state, according to the release. He then attempted to have another person assist in the fraud. Next up, choir concert to showcase high school singers. Dateline, Wayne, Nebraska. 28 high school singers from Nebraska and Iowa will be showcasing their talents later this month during a Wayne State College Music Theater Honor Choir Concert. The event is set for 4.30 p.m. on Wednesday, February 22nd in the Lay Theater on the Wayne State Campus. Admission is $5 for adults and free for kids 12 and under. For those unable to attend, there is a live stream option available at wsc.edu backslash watch dash live. For the event, members of the Wayne State College Chamber Choir will mentor and lead the students through rehearsals. According to a release, the program for the concert will include louder than words from Jonathan Larson's tick, tick, dot, 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 boom. With one look from Sunset Boulevard by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Smooth Criminal as heard in the MJ The Musical and arranged by Eric Bosio. For more information, you can call the WSC Department of Music at 402-375-7359. All right, I'll bring in the news here on page A5, and then I'm moving on to opinions. Sioux City Bed, Bath and Beyond to Close. The risk written by Jared McNett, Dateline Sioux City. The Sioux City Bed, Bath and Beyond location is joining the ever-growing ranks of storefronts the New Jersey-based retail chain is closing. Bed Bath & Beyond included the Sioux City business at 5751 Sunny Brook Drive on a February 7th list of nationwide closures, which are also affecting stores in Cedar Rapids, Coralville, Davenport, as well as Grand Island, Nebraska. The new wave of shutterings was announced in a Monday filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission and comes as Bed Bath & Beyond struck a deal to raise $1 billion in funds amid attempts to beat back bankruptcy, according to NBC News and The Wall Street Journal. A piece from CNN's business section noted that the home decor-focused company announced 87 closures just this past week and that those locations, including the one in Coralville, would be out of business in a matter of weeks. According to Axios, Bed Bath & Beyond had about 950 locations through November of 2022 and will be down to 480 after all the proposed closures are done. The company has had as many as 1,552 stores in the year 2017. Bed Bath & Beyond signed a lease in a new retail center under construction at Sioux City Sunnybrook Plaza in 2014. 
New Mercy One Western Iowa president named Dateline Sioux City. Mercy One Western Iowa has a new president. Mercy One, a connected system of health care facilities and services, announced the selection of Tom Clark for the position in a statement released on Wednesday. Clark will join Mercy One in late February. The statement said Clark brings multiple years of experience leading faith-based hospitals and health system operations. Clark most recently served as the Chief Strategy and Growth Officer for Avera Health in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. While there, he helped guide strategic priorities for the organization's 377 locations across five states, including hospitals, clinics, and senior living facilities. He also orchestrated a top-to-bottom review of the five-year strategic plan and provided oversight to a digital initiative which will dramatically improve consumer patient experiences across the healthcare system, according to the statement. Prior to Clark's promotion to that role, he served as the regional president and CEO of the Avera Queen of Peace Hospital and the region's four other hospitals. Before joining Avera, he held the CEO position at Bluffington Regional Medical Center and Wells Community Hospital in Bluffton, Indiana. Over my career, I have focused my work on creating a culture that promotes accountability, diversity, and inclusion, professional development, and collaboration, Clark said in the statement. Mercy One embodies that same culture and lives out its mission, vision, and values every day. It's an honor to have been selected to serve as the Mercy One Western Iowa president. I look forward to joining and helping to lead this exceptional group to continue delivering high-quality, compassionate care to our communities. Bob Ritz, CEO and president of Mercy One, called Clark a highly accomplished health care executive with an extensive track record of success. He is passionate about quality, safety, and culture. He has always been focused on the people, patients, colleagues, physicians, and communities. His commitment to mission makes him an incredible fit for Mercy One. We are honored to have him a part of our team, Ritz said. Our final story here on this page, and then we move on to opinions. Shooting at Nebraska Target highlights gaps in gun laws. It's written by Josh Funk and Heather Hollingsworth, the Associated Press, Dateline Omaha, Nebraska. In the last three years of his life, Joseph Jones was repeatedly sent to psychiatric hospitals because of his schizophrenia and delusions that a drug cartel was after him. The Nebraska man once laid down on a highway in Kansas because he wanted to be run over by a truck, but officers tackled him as he ran in front of vehicles. Time and time again, his family and the police took away his guns. But Jones was able to keep legally buying firearms, and law enforcement could do little. Once a deputy returned a Glock pistol to him, while another time a sheriff's department confiscated his gun, although keeping it raised questions. Last month, Jones opened fire in an Omaha Target store using a legally purchased AR-15 rifle. No one was hit by Jones' gunfire, but police shot and killed the 32-year-old as shoppers fled in panic. The episode demonstrates how gun laws fail to keep firearms out of the hands of deeply troubled people, despite a national effort to pass red flag laws in recent years. Mental health experts say most people with mental illness are not violent and far more likely to be victims of violent crime. Access to firearms is a big part of the problem. For him to be allowed to buy a firearm, there is no excuse for it, Jones' uncle Larry Dirksen Jr. said. It was just inevitable that something was going to happen. In August 2021, a deputy was called because Dirksen didn't want to return a gun to his nephew, who had just been released from a psychiatric hospital. 
Dirksen said Jones was paranoid, had been hearing voices, and had traveled through several states fearing a cartel was chasing him, according to a Sarpy County Sheriff's Office incident report. But Jones told the deputy he was taking medication. He felt fine and had no plans to hurt anyone. The gun was clean, and the only conviction Jones had was for a DUI after he collided with another vehicle on his way home from a bar years earlier. I had no reason, the deputy wrote in the report, to believe Joseph could not possess a firearm. Nebraska isn't among the 19 states with a red flag law. Also known as extreme risk protection orders, they're intended to restrict the purchase of guns or temporarily remove them from people who may hurt themselves or something else, or someone else. A red flag law has been proposed for Nebraska this year, but it hasn't received a legislative hearing yet. This kind of example screaming out for an extreme risk protection order said Chris Brown, the president of the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. It actually breaks my heart that did not happen here. Federal law has banned some mentally ill people from buying guns since 1968, including those deemed a danger to themselves or others who have been involuntarily committed or judged not guilty by reason of insanity or incompetent to stand trial. But it says what the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives spokesman John Hamm described as a very high bar in order for someone's name to be submitted to the FBI for inclusion in the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. They must undergo a hearing in which they are deemed unable to take care of their personal business because of mental illness. The law describes it as being adjudicated as a mental defective. Every state has a different process, but the multiple three-day involuntary com commitments that Jones' family and law enforcement records described didn't trigger such a hearing. A couple of years ago, Jones' family was so desperate that they considered going through the process. They are fam familiar with some of the court processes because Jones' mother also has schizophrenia, is low-functioning, and had to be committed to a group home. But they decided not to pursue that because they were able to persuade law enforcement to intervene and get Jones into a mental hospital. Recently, Jones called the FBI to report some sort of harassment, his uncle said. The agency said it couldn't discuss specific calls. Police haven't said why Jones entered the target with 13 loaded rifle magazines and fired multiple rounds. Dirksen said he believes his nephew didn't want to carry out a mass shooting, but instead wanted police to kill him. He said his nephew had delusions that the cartel would hurt his family if he didn't kill himself. A timeline released by police made no mention of Jones firing directly at customers or workers. Instead, he fired his AR-15 rifle in the air and at, in an immediate, at inanimate objects, including a self-checkout and a drink cooler. Authorities ordered him to drop the gun more than 20 times, and after Jones said, I'll kill you, he was shot once. And we move on now to the opinion section. Another view written by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, more to story about boxes of documents. Do not necessarily blame Trump, Pence, or Biden for mishandled secret papers at homes. There is no author attributed to this story, so they must be too cowardly to put their name. Controversy surrounding the discovery of classified documents in the personal quarters of Joe Biden, former President Donald Trump, and former Vice President Mike Pence have helped some misperceptions that flourish about how these documents wind up in places they shouldn't be. 
The fact that classified documents have been located in storage areas belonging to three leaders doesn't mean they were the ones who packed them up and hauled them away. As much as Republicans want to demonize Biden and Democrats want to vilify Trump for the document's discovery, much more is to the story of how they got mishandled. If willful disregard of the law was involved, there was absolutely there should be legal accountability. It also matters whether the people under investigation deliberately withheld documents or obstructed federal authorities from retrieving them. On that score, Trump so far appears to be the only one who claimed a right to keep documents that belong to the government. Pence has decided to fall on his sword. During the closing days of the administration, when materials were boxed and assembled, some of which were shipped to our personal residence, mistakes were made, Pence told Fox News, adding, I take full responsibility for it. Pence's statement of contrition and responsibility comes in stark contrast to Trump's refusal to admit any error while insisting he possessed the ability to declassify documents just by thinking about it. The Biden White House, meanwhile, is able to hide behind the existence of an ongoing investigation to avoid explaining how Biden might have mishandled his documents. Despite Pence's full-throated mea culpa, it's not as if he picked up a classified folder and tucked it under his waistband to sneak it out of his office. Nor did he personally pack all the boxes as he vacated the, the vice presidential suite. Security cleared government movers swooped down in droves to pack up the president's and vice president's belongings quickly to make way for their successors to move in on Inauguration Day. Though documents aren't supposed to be in that mix, the frenzy of packing and moving creates a range of possibilities. Biden was obviously too quick to condemn Trump's handling of top secret and other classified documents before making sure his own personal spaces were document-free, which they weren't. The difference is that Biden and Pence opened the door for federal agents to ensure that they weren't, there weren't, aren't more documents. Trump slammed it shut, forcing the FBI to obtain a search warrant. There's plenty of blame to go around, including the lower-level officials who failed to keep tabs on where sensitive documents were placed. But Trump is the only one asserting he had a right to keep them. Therein lies the difference. Our second opinion I'll bring you here is America's tribalism is creating a post-shame world. This written by Lynn Schmidt. Growing up, I remember hearing the phrase, have you no shame? That question must have held some power back in the day. But if you ask that now, some shapers of our current political culture would respond with a resounding no. Hyperpartisanship has moved us into a post-shame world. Shame is the internal, uncomfortable sense arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable or improper, whether that has been done by oneself or another. While shame is a negative emotion, it plays on an important part in the development of civilizations. Without shame, there is no longer a need to adhere to social norms, to cultural norms, rather. Follow laws or behave in a way that allows us to exist as social beings. The diminishing influence of shame is exactly what we have been witnessing. And until we can reduce polarization and bring back healthy shame, we will continue to see politicians such as Republican Representative George Santos not only rise to power, but remain in office. Santos may be, just be the quintessential example of what a post-shame world looks like. Okay, if I start giggling, everyone, it's, uh, this article is getting hard to get through. The new representative from New York's list of lies is long. Here are just a few listed in no particular order of shamefulness. 
Santos said he earned degrees from New York University and Baruch College. He claimed that while at Baruch College, he was a star volleyball player who required two knee replacements from playing. He later admitted that he didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. Santos' campaign website claimed his mother was in the World Trade Center on 9-11 and that she died as a result of the attacks. According to NBC News reporting, Fatima Caruso Devolder was living in Brazil in 2001 and died of cancer in 2016. Santos described himself as a proud American Jew and falsely claimed his grandparents escaped the Holocaust and said he had been to Israel numerous times. He later backtracked and said he was Jewish. Finally, he alleged that four of his employees were killed in the Pulse shooting. According to a New York Times investigation, none of the 49 victims of the mass shooting appear to have had any connection to Santos. Perhaps Santos himself is not able to experience the personal sensation of shame as he is not yet to express any sincere remorse for his lies. In the past, the institutions of political parties and party elites would have stepped in and put pressure on him to behave appropriately or step down. Unfortunately for the electorate, specifically New York's 3rd Congressional District, the Republican Party has also moved past shame and <laughs> will no longer apply pressure because retaining power is more important. This sickness of audac- audaciousness has infected the country widely. Multiple Republican elected officials have condemned Santos' lies and requested his resignation, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Santos will continue to serve. Santos has since been assigned to two House committees, though he reportedly is stepping aside while investigations are underway. This shamelessness is a byproduct of the nation's extreme polarization. We are willing to excuse immoral behavior and lies because the other side is worse. Those negative views of the opposing party and contempt for others continue to rise. In 1994, a Pew Research poll found that the majority, that a majority of Republicans had unfavorable impressions of the Democratic Party, but just 17% had very unfavorable opinions. Similarly, while most Democrats viewed the GOP unfavorably, just 16% had very unfavorable views. Since then, highly negative views have more than doubled. 43% of Republicans and 38% of Democrats now view the opposite party in strongly negative terms. More than half of all Republicans and nearly half of all Democrats now believe their political opponents to be immoral. A recent YouGov survey showed that 60% of Democrats regard the opposing party as a serious threat to the United States. For Republicans, that figure approaches 70%. A 2020 study out of Brown University showed that Americans' feelings toward members of other political parties have worsened faster than those of residents of other prominent democracies. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. Each side fears the country would be destroyed if the other side achieves power. Gaining influence and securing elective seats has become more important than maintaining a healthy moral compass. Tribalism removes the need to think for ourselves and judge conduct. and asks that we only consider that the other party's members are doing as justification for what happens on our team. I'm afraid we are sliding uncomfortably uncontrollably down a very slippery ethical slope. The way back up is to reduce our polarization, call out our own, and give candidates' personal conduct a high priority when we enter the, the voting booth. I long for the day when the political, in the political arena we can ask that original question again, have you no shame, and finally get the answer, yes, I do. Well, that's uh, Lynn Schmidt. She's a columnist and editorial board member for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch.
You can email her about what you think about that. And we are running close here. Very, very, very close. Well, in the wrap-up, I'll read you uh, one of the Dear Abbeys. Wife holds veto power in couples' major decisions. Dear Abby, my wife and I have been married for 37 years. We have a fairly good marriage. However, when it comes to communication, there is a lot of room for improvement. I would like very much to get a second dog. I'm home alone all day because I am on disability. I have few friends, and my social life consists of the time and attention I give my dog, Rascal, a standard schnauzer. The problem is, if I mention the subject, my wife gets very angry and immediately dismisses the idea without any discussion. We don't discuss issues in our home. If my wife gives her thumbs up, then it's a go. If she gives a thumbs down, it's a no-go. I don't think there's any reason why her refusal to get another dog should trump my desire to get one. I would appreciate any help you could give me. I would very much like another dog because having them brings me much joy and needed company. I don't ask for much. I don't understand why this is an issue. Lonely for more in Ohio, writes that. Dear Abby writes, Dear Lonely, your problem is twofold. One is acquiring another dog. The other is the imbalance of power in your marriage. I agree that important decisions like this one should be shared, but that's not how things work between you and your wife. In your household, she has taken on the role of alpha dog. Unless the two of you open enough lines of communication that you can be heard, nothing will change and you will grow increasingly unhappy. If you can afford a licensed marriage and family therapist, make an appointment to talk with one about this and any other issues you and your wife can't agree on. That writes Dear Abby. And I bring you the second one, but we are short. Yes, we are short. Here in this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, February the 9th. Hope you have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Haupt saying, have a nice day and straight ahead. Mm-hmm.